Thank you, Stephen. If you want to open up your Bible to Revelation chapter 21, Revelation 21, we're going to hop around, but we'll begin in Revelation 21. We're now a few weeks into our sermon series on heaven, hell, death, the life to come. And today we're going to turn our topic to attention, uh, our attention to a topic that we would prefer to leave unaddressed, undiscussed, unmentioned. Today, we're going to talk about hell. Now, I know if this is your first time with us, I'm falling into every stereotype you might have of a church. I understand that. That's a temptation when you preach on the doctrine of hell, when you teach about hell. And I know that nothing feels harder, more controversial, more incendiary, more troubling than hell. But we can't talk about death and heaven and not talk about hell. It would just be dishonest. And you might well wonder why. Why, why can't we just not talk about hell? I would prefer if you don't talk about hell. Well, we can't because the Bible talks about hell. Because Jesus talks about hell. Because hell is a real place of real exile where real people currently are and where some will live forever. So we're going to ask three questions, and I know you would prefer that we ask any other questions today but these three, but we must, because the Bible draws our attention to it, and so we must as well. Three questions, you can write these down. Why is there hell at all? Why is there hell? The second question, who goes to hell? Who goes to hell? And the third question, what is the future of hell? What is the future of hell? I'm going to read Revelation 21, verses 1 through 8. Afterwards, I'll say, this is the word of the Lord. And you're invited to respond, thanks be to God. And I know that there are times when I read a passage and it is very easy to say, thanks be to God. And there are other times where it's harder. And I know that this will be one of the hard ones. Let me read it for us. Revelation 21, verses 1 through 8. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them and they will be his people and God himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore, for the former things have passed away. And he who was seated on the throne said, Behold, I am making all things new. Also he said, Write this down, for these words are trustworthy and true. And he said to me, it is done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. To the thirsty I will give from the spring of the water of life without payment. The one who conquers will have this heritage, and I will be his God, and he will be my son. But as for the cowardly, the faithless, the detestable, as for murderers, the sexually immoral, sorcerers, idolaters, and all liars, their portion will be in the lake that burns with fire and sulfur, which is the second death. This is the word of the Lord. Let me pray for us. Father, we love you. 
And we do thank you for your word, even the parts of it that don't accord with maybe some of our sensibilities. We submit to it. As Christians, God, we know that you have called us to listen and to heed the full counsel of your word. Maybe even especially those parts that run in friction with our best thoughts and dreams. Our best ideas at what could be or what is or what will be. And today I pray that you would give us attentive hearts. And I pray that hell would break soft hearts, that it would burden us, that it would remind us, God, of the grim reality of sin and the holiness of God, and yet the hope and grace of a Savior who has come to bring us to heaven. We pray these things in the name of Christ and by the power of the Holy Spirit. Amen. If we're going to talk about hell, we have to begin with this question, which is a good question. Why is there hell? I've heard so many people go, well, why would there need to be hell at all? As if hell is some machination of God, like hell was the best that God could come up with for us. That's really not the way that the story of Scripture talks about the doctrine of hell. Going all the way back to the beginning of the story in Genesis 1 and 2, God created humanity to dwell with God in his place, in his presence forever. That is why God created us as humans. He didn't create us to live exiled from God forever. He created us to live with God forever in the glory of his presence. And yet our representatives in the garden, Adam and Eve, they rejected the rule and reign and presence of God to try to establish their own kingdom. And the consequence of that rebellion, the consequence of that rejection is exile. It is exile. It's banishment. Going all the way back to Genesis 3, maybe you remember Adam and Eve, they reject God's rule and reign, they try to establish their own, they submit to the satanic lies of the serpent, and the consequence of that is death. It's death. That is the consequence of sin. God did not create the world to have death in it. God did not create humanity to live apart from God. He created humanity to live with God in his glorious presence in a glorious place forever. That is what and why and how God created the world. And yet humanity, our representatives, the ambassadors that we had for us in the garden, they sinned. And when they sinned, not merely the consequences of their sin, but the stain of their sin, it now falls upon all of us who come in their wake. Part of the key consequences of Adam and Eve's sin in the garden was exile from the garden. This is an often neglected part of the story. It's not a part we want to dwell on for very long. But do you know that Adam and Eve were not allowed to remain in the garden of Eden? They didn't stay there in God's blessed place. It was now a broken place, not by any act of God, but by an act of man. And and so they would not stay and live forever in this broken garden. God exiled them. He sent them out of the garden. And all throughout the story of Scripture, you see this cycle. This cycle of God rescuing his people, those people being absolutely needy and desperate for God, then a people emerging who forget God, then they forsake God, and then they experience exile from God. Why is there hell? Why is there hell? Because there are those who persist in rejecting God's gracious presence and his kingdom, and they want to live apart from God for now, and so he allows them to live apart from God forever. 
This is not a new story. Hell is not a later development. Hell corresponds with the exile that we see God pull people into. When they say, we do not want your kingdom, we do not want your presence, we do not want your rule and reign, God says, then here you go. This is what it looks like apart from it. This is what it looks like outside of it. You don't want Eden? Okay, here's exile. You don't want the promised land? Here's Babylon. This is a cycle that repeats itself all throughout the course of the Bible, and in particular, the Old Testament. At the heart of the origin of sin and hell is the forever home of those who tell God, I don't want you. I don't want you. Hell is not a place that is filled with people that God looked at and said, I don't want you. Hell is full of people who look at God and his kingdom and say, not for me. I don't want that. That's not the kingdom I want to be a part of. Hell exists because of evil, and evil exists because of humanity's rebellion against God. Sin deserves judgment. If you've been sinned against, you know that. When you look at the great atrocities and evils and wickedness in the world, whatever breaks your heart, you hope that it will see judgment. And guess what? God is holy. God is holy. It means he's perfect. He's without stain. He will not allow evil to go unaddressed. And so subsequently, humanity sins against God. And the consequences of that sin is the holy judgment of God against sin. Why does hell exist? Because evil exists. And why does evil exist? Because humanity said no to God and yes to themselves. They said, I don't want your kingdom. I want my own kingdom. And so exile is like hell. And that God says, you don't want to live with me? Then don't. Go out there. Go to the broken place and live there. And tell me, is it better? And the answer is a resounding no, even though we often pretend to be content with it. You see, the sad fact is that most people want hell to exist. Most people want hell to exist. They just don't want it to be a reality for them. Most people want hell to exist. They just want it for a particularly bad class of people. For the truly heinous, those who commit such offensive wrongdoing in the life of the world that almost everyone agrees hell is fitting. I spent some time doing college evangelism, campus evangelism. And I would talk to students on campus. And I would ask them, who do you think goes to hell? Do you, can you imagine what some of the most popular names were? I'm sure it won't take you long. There's a Hollywood star road of people that people believe should be in hell. Your Hitlers, Pol Potts, your Stalins, your Osama bin Laden, sex traffickers, serial killers, mass shooters. People believe that hell is real, but only for the truly heinous. For those who do things they could never dream or imagine of doing. And let me tell you something. Hell is a real place where real evil is reckoned by with God. God reckons and judges real evil. I know that it grieves and breaks many of our hearts that there are evils that appear to go unaddressed in the here and the now. But let me tell you something. They will not go unaddressed forever. I mean, just in the last week, 
And I, I, I am more and more exempting myself from living in the onslaught of foolishness that is the 24-7 news cycle. I would invite you to do the same. But even is trying to pull back from that, in the last week, Deep Ellum has once again been awash in gun violence leading to murder. We have seen the forces of the world cry out to defend the false god of unrestricted, unfettered access to abortion. And we have seen another mass shooting, this time in Buffalo, where a man driven by hate, racism, and violence drives hours away to target people of color to kill them. This world. It is hard to be rosy and naive the longer you live in a broken world. And I know there are a lot of pulpits and a lot of churches that would be okay with giving you just a smattering of sermon sugar every week. And I cannot do it. I love you too much. The evil of this world will be judged. It will be dealt with. Let me tell you something. Hell is a reminder that God will reckon with evil. Every drop of it is either answered for in the cross of Christ or it will be accounted for in the judgment of hell. God is a holy God. And the only way that he acquits the guilty is if their punishment is paid by another. Everybody thinks somebody should end up in hell. They just can't imagine that they should be there as well. And while the degree is often different, which is mercy of the Lord that the degree is often different, the same kinds of evil and sin that are disgusting to us when they lead to grand events of violence, the kinds of things that we collectively despise, when we see them out there, they disgust us, and yet the roots of them are in here too. And it is but a mercy of God that he restrains the brokenness and evil and wickedness that could be. And it is easy for us to say that is wicked and for us to miss that apart from the grace of God, so are we. We often think that message, the message of hell is somehow a fire and brimstone message of old school revivalists. We imagine hypocritical preachers preaching hellfire on a Sunday only to go live like hell in the dark corners of their lives. I get it. It's hard for us to imagine Jesus talking about hell. And yet in the course of Scripture, nobody, nobody, nobody talks about hell more than Jesus. And I know that breaks our paradigm, but nobody talks about it more than Jesus. In Matthew 3, you can turn there. We'll spend a few moments in Matthew 13. In Matthew 3, John the Baptist says about Jesus, he says this, He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. His winnowing fork is in his hand, and he will clear his threshing floor and gather his wheat into the barn, but the chaff he will burn with unquenchable fire. 
This phrase, unquenchable fire, it's not just used here. It also occurs in Mark 9, 43, where Jesus says, And if your hand causes you to sin, cut it off. It is better for you to enter life crippled than with two hands to go to hell to the unquenchable fire. Matthew 13, 24 through 30. I'm going to read all of this because it's worth our attention. We don't think that, you know, if you're just out there and you think, well, who's talking about hell? People often talk about the God of the Old Testament is this hellfire God. Well, there is no God of the Old Testament, God of the New Testament. There's one God revealing who he is over the whole course of Scripture. But even if that paradigm were true, the God of the New Testament, so to speak, Jesus is talking about hell. Matthew 13, verse 24, Jesus says, He put another parable before them, saying, The kingdom of heaven may be compared to a man who sowed good seed in his field. But while his men were sleeping, his enemy came and sowed weeds among the wheat and went away. So when the plants came up and bore grain, then the weeds appeared also. And the servants of the master of the house came and said to him, Master, did you not sow good seed in your field? How then does it have weeds? He said to them, An enemy has done this. So the servant said to him, Then do you want us to go and gather them? But he said, No, lest than gathering the weeds, you root up the wheat along with them. Let both grow together until the harvest. And at harvest time, I will tell the reapers, gather the weeds first and bind them in bundles to be burned, but gather the wheat into my barn. This is Jesus telling the story about the sorting of the righteous from the unrighteous. He makes it clear he will be the master of this sorting. And then at the end of the world, his righteous ones will be gathered up together. And look at verses 36 through 43. Because people hear this parable of the weeds and the wheat, and they're like, whoa, hold on. We surely cannot be understanding you. And in verse 36, it says this. Then he left the crowds and went into the house, and his disciples came to him. Explain to us the parable of the weeds of the field. I love this. Because Jesus has spoken to the crowd. They wait for the crowd to leave, and the disciples come to him and say, could you give that to us one more time? We don't understand And this is what Jesus says. He answered, the one who sows the good seed is the son of man. The field is the world and the good seed is the sons of the kingdom. The weeds are the sons of the evil one and the enemy who sowed them is the devil. The harvest is the end of the age and the reapers are angels. Just as the weeds are gathered and burned with fire, so will it be at the end of the age. The son of man will send his angels and they will gather out of his kingdom all causes of sin and all lawbreakers and throw them into the fiery furnace. In that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Then the righteous will shine like the sun in the kingdom of their father. He who has ears, let him hear. This could not be more clear. And I know, I know, I know we don't want to hear it. Jesus says it once, his disciples, the inner circle come to him and go, we don't understand, and he makes it even plainer to them. At the end of the end, you and I and everyone else who has ever lived 
will be met at the judgment seat of God. Full stop. The only difference will be not these people did more good than bad or these people did more bad than good. The only difference will be are you still in Adam or have you received God's grace in Jesus? That's it. None of us will have a megaphone shouting out our righteous deeds. It will not happen. God will not have a megaphone shouting out your unrighteous deeds. It will not happen. There will be two identities before the throne of God. There will be those who have remained in rejection of God and have staked their claim in Adam. And those people will be given what they have wanted, which is forever apart from God. And there will be those who have staked their claim in Jesus. And they will be frail. Some of us are going to be limping to that throne. I'm sure of it. And yet God will restore us, not because we have been great, but because he is gracious. In Matthew 10, 28, Jesus says, Do not fear those who can kill the body but cannot kill the soul. Rather, fear him who can destroy both soul and body in hell. This word hell it's used here. It's a reference to a place called Gehenna. That's the Greek word that stands behind it. Gehenna, nobody would have been under any illusion about where Gehenna was. Gehenna was very visible. Gehenna was very visceral. Gehenna was a place of nonstop trash fire. That's what Gehenna was. It wasn't the meme dumpster fire. It was a real dumpster fire nonstop outside the walls of the city. It was where you went to dump your refuse. It was a trash place that was constantly on fire. When Jesus uses the word Gehenna to talk about hell, everyone that he is speaking to knows exactly what he's talking about, a place you do not want to go, a place no one wants to be, certainly a place that would be inconceivable to live in for a day. It would be inconceivable to live in forever. He's using an image that immediately strikes their attention and says, whatever that is, I don't want that. I don't want it for a moment. I certainly don't want it forever. Hell is a real place. Jesus speaks about hell. It's not there because God wants there to be hell. It's there because we didn't want God. Because we rejected him and his rule and reign. And subsequently, the consequences of that rejection are exile. And because you and I are forever creatures, it is not a momentary exile. It is a forever exile. You and I were created to live with God forever. And we will live forever. The only question is whether we will live with God or apart from God. Life with God forever is called heaven. And appropriately so, because it is a paradise that's the language that the New Testament's using. Life forever apart from God is called hell, and that's appropriate because it's a place no one wants to spend a moment, let alone forever. This is why hell exists, and those who go there are those who remain in unrighteousness. In answer to the question, who goes to hell, 
An honest answer says this. Everyone deserves to go to hell. Everyone. But not everyone will. Everyone deserves it, but not everyone will. All those who persist in Adam's rejection, all those who continue to reject the righteousness of God and his righteous ways, those who don't give their faith over to Jesus, those who want to keep themselves for themselves forever, those are those who will be given over to hell for good forever. Hell is not just a future place. Hell is a present place. We've been talking in this series about a present heaven and a present hell, and there is a present heaven. There is a place right now where if you were to die in Christ, you go to be with God forever. That's good news. But the other side of that is that there is a present hell, a present hell that's marked by separation from God, a present hell that's marked by consciousness, a present hell that is temporary, but it is a place of judgment. A present hell that is apart from the blessed presence of God. And yet, one day, this present hell will spill out all that it has, and a future hell will be established. You heard this in Revelation 21.8. The present hell is swallowed up in what the Bible calls the lake that burns with fire and sulfur, which is the second death. This future hell is the place where Satan and his demonic forces are sentenced forever. Those who are in the present hell now will be sentenced to this future hell at the judgment seat of God. And this future hell is conscious. It is forever. It is a place of divine judgment. It is a place of torment. And you might go, well, what characterizes life forever in hell? Well, it's the very same thing that were the consequences of humanity's sin. Exile from God's paradise, separation from God's blessed presence, God's righteous judgment, sin, death, shame, alienation from others. Hell is the place where those who reject God's grace and righteousness and kingdom in Christ get what they wanted all along, freedom from God forever. That's what hell is. It is freedom from God Forever. Freedom. Not with God. Not to God. Not for God. Freedom from God. Forever. You aren't supposed to rejoice in hell. You aren't supposed to be uplifted by it. You're not supposed to be encouraged by it. You're not supposed to be stirred up by it. You're certainly not supposed to be excited about it. I want you to notice something in Revelation 21, 22 through 27. The Apostle John writing says, And I saw no temple in the city, for its temple is the Lord God, the Almighty, and the Lamb. And the city has no need of sun or moon to shine on it, for the glory of God gives it light, and its lamp is the Lamb. By its light will the nations walk, and the kings of the earth will bring their glory into it. And its gates, listen to this, its gates will never be shut by day, and there will be no night there. They will bring into it the glory and honor of the nations, but nothing unclean will ever enter it, nor anyone who does what is detestable or false, but only those who are written in the Lamb's book of life. Further on in Revelation 22, we hear this. 
Blessed are those who wash their robes so that they may have the right to the tree of life, that they may enter the city by the gates. Outside are the dogs and sorcerers and the sexually immoral and murderers and idolaters and everyone who loves and practices falsehood. What am I getting at here? In Revelation 21, we hear the gates of God's heavenly city are never closed. And outside of God's heavenly city is wickedness and unrighteousness. The point that I'm making here, the point that scripture is making is this. Hell is the judgment of God against sin and evil. But guess what? God administers this judgment not by slamming the door shut and saying, no vacancy for you. He doesn't put a measuring stick on the gates of heaven and say, you have to be this good to enter in. He administers this judgment by looking at the persistent rejection of his grace and saying, you can have forever what you so desperately wanted then. There's an author who's a pastor. His name's Josh Butler. In his book, Skeletons in God's Closet, he says this. I think this is helpful. It is here that the logic of hell arises. God's city has a posture of embrace toward the world, but sin will not be allowed inside. God redeems the world from sin, so we must face the reality of which we prefer, God or sin. Freedom from God or freedom for God. Freedom from God will be cast outside the city because it is opposed by its various nature to the glorious goodness of what is happening inside the city. Hell is distanced from God and its closet is latched on the inside. He's pulling this from C.S. Lewis's The Great Divorce. Lewis in The Great Divorce is at pains to point out what I am trying to to implore you to see. Because maybe you've walked in here today and you think, of course, another preacher talking about hell for everyone else. Listen, no one is more confident that they belong in hell than me. I know it. I know what I deserve apart from grace. I know who I am. I know how I've sinned. I, I, I'm confident over what no one in this room deserves but me, and I am very confident in what I deserve. I know who I am apart from God's grace in Jesus. I know it better than you could ever know it. And I do not come in here today as someone to tell you that, listen, I got in on the right track because I'm the right guy at the right time. I got in here to tell you that no one deserves heaven and yet God is graciously providing it to us in Jesus. And it's true for me and it's true for you. Regardless of where you've come from, regardless of what you're doing, regardless if you walked in here today saying, I want nothing to do with God and his kingdom, you can walk out of here today saying, the kingdom of God is the defining reality of my life. You can experience grace and forgiveness. He will not hold your history against you, regardless of what you've done, because your past is rewritten and your future is retold in Jesus. That is true for you by grace. And hell will be populated with those who, having heard this, having seen God's power on display in creation, say, you know what? I am good without him. I'm good without him. Those who go to hell aren't there because there wasn't room in God's heavenly home, but because they are unwilling to surrender their hearts. And surrender is required. It's required. 
what faith is. That's what loyalty is. That's what allegiance is. That's what faithfulness is. It's saying, I don't belong to me. I belong to God. Life with God requires surrender. Yes, hell should break our hearts. Hell should humble us. Hell should send us running into a lost world, inviting everyone to the table of the Lord. And yet I fear that many of us are more afraid of being embarrassed by sharing the gospel with someone we know than we are, over, than we are concerned over the threat of hell. I think we're more concerned with our children missing out on some earthly reality now that is purely circumspect, purely just a, a pipe dream. We're more concerned about them missing out on some reality tomorrow than we are the firm, 100% reality they will stand before the holy judgment of God. I think we are more concerned with keeping up appearances than we are with the reality that we will all live forever, either with God or apart from him. There is so much in your life that is uncertain. I know that. I feel that. But what is certain is that you will stand before a holy and righteous God. It is certain. You can distract yourself from it. You can ignore it. You can pretend that it's not there. You could wish that it wasn't, and it will not change the reality of it. You will stand before a holy God, and everyone that you know will. Hell should send us running to the throne of God's grace and from the throne of God's grace, running to a world in desperate need to hear the message of that grace. I'll close with this. Are you familiar with the comedy magician's Penn and Teller? Yes. A few years ago, Penn, who is a proud atheist, recorded a short video about a person who came up to him after a magic show. The man complimented him on the show and then he said, hey, I brought this for you. And he handed him a pocket New Testament. He said, hey, I wrote a little note in the front of it, and I wanted you to have this. And Penn goes on in this video to say he was so moved by the man's gesture. And he said in the video, as he recalled the event, he said he was kind and nice and sane. He looked me in the eyes, and he talked to me, and then he gave me this Bible. And this is what he says at the end of it. I've always said I don't respect people who don't evangelize. I don't respect that at all. If you believe there is a heaven and hell and people could be going to hell or not, getting eternal life or whatever, and you think it's not really worth telling them this because it would make it socially awkward, how much do you have to hate somebody to not evangelize? How much do you have to hate someone to believe in everlasting life is possible and not tell them that? I mean, the honesty of these words, the humility to acknowledge a reality that far few of us would say, I just want to keep that outside. You know, I've often said the image of God is the most inconvenient doctrine because it slows down your life. It means everyone you've ever engaged with is not merely some means to an end. They're an end in and of themselves. It should slow you down so that you might treat them with grace and love and dignity. The image of God should inconvenience us, should slow our lives down. And as I was prepping for this sermon, my dad said, you know, I, I think that's true. He said, but I would suggest to you that even beyond that, the doctrine of everlasting life is maybe far more inconvenient because it reminds us that the urgent affairs of our life, when seen in contrast with forever will be but a vapor. 
There'll be a moment, there'll be a nanosecond, something that just vanishes. And God is inviting you and I to live with forever in mind, and not just the forever we hope for, but the forever we deserve, not just the forever we've been rescued from, but the forever that still remains for those who have not placed their faith and trust in Jesus, the forever that stands on the other side of the holy judgment seat of God that everyone we have ever known and has ever lived will stand in front of, and they will either plead the blood of Jesus or they will call out, the name of Adam. Hell should break our hearts and it should send us out into the world with an urgency in our gospel proclamation. Lastly, Romans 9. Paul says in Romans 9, 3, this... <laughs> Paul says in Romans 9, 3, for I could wish myself accursed and cut off from Christ for the sake of my brothers my kinsmen according to the flesh. What compels a person to say, I could not lose what God has given me in Jesus. But if it was required so that others could know forever life with God, I would. Do you know what compels a person? Love. Love. Do you love anyone enough to beg them to see the grace of God in Jesus? And if you don't, why not? That's what I might ask of God. Let me pray for us. Father, we love you. God, we, we need you beyond what we would dare to admit what we could even fathom. God, I know. <laughs> God, I know the brokenness of my heart. I know what I deserve apart from grace. I, I am convinced. And I have done nothing to earn it. Not, not a thing. Thank you for grace and mercy. I pray that we would receive with glad and generous hearts and that what has been entrusted to us we would proclaim to the world. Save your people, dear Father. Rescue them. We pray these things in the name of Christ and by the power of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Would you stand with me?